Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan, joined as usual by Benjamin Red. How are you, Ben? I'm good. I'm sitting sort of in a pillow fort in my in my home, trying to uh, work on the sound quality. Still, uh, still haven't quite gotten the hang of doing this recording remote type thing. Let me be honest. You just want an excuse to make a pillow fort. <laughs> that that is a huge <laughs> plus. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> and I'm sitting in my village house with very bad acoustics. But anyway, this is a great episode. I'm really excited about it. We have guest Leia Bukhater, who is a researcher in labor relations and labor movements in Lebanon. And uh, she works with this Consultation and Research Institute, and she teaches at LAU. Leia, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nizar. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Can you tell us just a little bit about uh, yourself and what you do? I actually main, mainly do research on labor and the labor movement. And I've done my doctoral research on the labor movement in Lebanon during the Civil War and until 2017, 2018. So I'm looking forward to discuss a few things uh, and to reflect about the situation now in retrospect. Yeah, and uh, we are so excited to have you. And I know I'm going to learn a whole lot from this whole discussion regarding labor and everything that's going on, both the history and what's going on right now. But first, of course, we have to get to the news. Coronavirus is back in the news this week. We had a uh, spike in cases this week, 814 cases as of Saturday, the, the latest that we have with 26 deaths. Uh, last Sunday, those numbers were 737 and 25. So a significant uptick this week in the number of cases mm. uh, after they had uh, been relatively small. The number of new cases have been relatively small uh, for the uh, past few weeks. Also, the number of active cases has bumped up after uh, falling or staying flat since uh, mid-April or so. Uh, many of these new cases are coming from returning expats. Uh, for instance, uh, this past Thursday saw the biggest spike in new case reports in several weeks. There were 34 new cases that day. 33 of them came from returning expats. These are these MEA flights that are specially chartered to bring Lebanese from Italy or from Saudi Arabia or from wherever back home to Lebanon. It, it, this is not now necessarily a, a terrible thing, right? Because we we seem to be testing basically everyone coming in. I, I'm not sure how it works with like private flights or whatever, but with the numbers of people coming in, we seem to be recording a more or less true number of detectable cases. And then also on top of that, we have the locally transmitted cases. And here with the locally transmitted cases, we also seem to be seeing an uptick uh, this past week. So, for instance, we had 18 new cases on Saturday, just yesterday, from when we were recording this. Of those 18, 16 were local transmission. And, and five of those were actually all soldiers that are posted to the military tribunal here in Beirut. Now, according to uh, the Daily Star's Ghada al-Sharif, the true number of infected soldiers is closer to 13, if not more. That's according to an army source. And the health minister, Hassan Hamad, will reportedly seek a two-day lockdown if the cases continue to rise. In the meantime, some businesses opened up this past Monday, so a week ago uh, by now. Some restaurants opened at 30% capacity. Uh, hair salons also supposedly opened with men's open Monday through Wednesday and women's opened Thursday through Saturday. And it was by appointment only. Car showrooms opened, I guess. Mosques? open for Friday prayers. Uh, it was supposed to be at 30% capacity. Uh, churches also are opening for Sunday services. 
and more openings are scheduled for for Monday tomorrow. By the time you're listening to this, I have no idea whether these will actually happen uh, due to the uptick that we've seen. But according to the schedule, restaurants were supposed to up their capacity from 30% to 70% uh, as of today, Monday. But again, whether or not that happens, I think at least to us, since we're recording this on Sunday, we don't quite know that yet. Yeah, but what we can see, obviously, from the streets in Beirut is that people have gone back to their, you know, business as usual. It's uh, it's taken much less seriously than before in terms of respecting the rules, etc. Rules of, you know, interaction with each other and social distancing. Also, the le- the rule of not leaving your house unless you, you know, you need to. It's not like just um, any other uh, any other time. And uh, given the traffic that we've been seeing the last uh, couple of weeks, especially in the last week in Beirut, it's it's it's. I think it's a clear sign that people need some kind of a shock, and this is probably why Hamad Hassan is thinking of a 48-hour lockdown if the reports are true. Because you know, th- when things go back to usual, you need something that makes you uh, worried so that you come back to your habits of protecting yourself and people around you, etc. So um, if we see it, I wouldn't be surprised because you know. We we need to take this seriously. We shouldn't like risk going into a second wave that would overwhelm the the health sector. Right, right, yeah, and 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 so yeah, the the health minister Hassan Hamad has uh, reportedly suggested this that the country go on a full all out forty eight hour lockdown if the number of case, cases continues to rise. Uh, so I mean, we, we've been expecting a, a potential second wave, but I don't think quite this early. So um, we, we'll see what the authorities decide to do with this, whether they judge this as like sort of the uptick or the beginning of a second wave or whether they uh, see that, no, this isn't we, we don't quite need to lock down yet. This is just a temporary blip on the radar. And it's important to note uh, the reasoning behind the suggestion that there be a 48-hour lockdown, and and that is so that authorities will be able to go in and do testing in areas that they think are hot spots, uh, so that we can get sort of a better handle on where the virus is and and what needs to be done to combat it. So apart from uh, the corona stuff, we also had quite a scandal this week uh, in terms of fuel and fuel imports. Apparently, for the last few months, at around seven months, we've been importing fuel that doesn't meet the requirements, that fails in, in, in lab tests to meet you know, the requirements for quality. And um, this story has was broken for by different people. Like it, it, it came out in different ways. In one way, by uh, a lawyer filing complaint with uh, the Mount Lebanon district attorney Gadaoun. And then also there is Yahya Mawlud, who is a political activist, but also the manager of a company, Middle East Power, that basically operates uh, plants in GE about the fact that the fuel oil and the gas was not meeting uh, the standards. So this is a whole big issue now. And there are reports of uh, arrests of 21 people from the energy ministry. And the story is basically that the Lebanese government has been in contract with a, with a company, Algerian company, uh, registered in Virgin British Virgin Islands called Sonatrack. And this contract has been going on and being renewed for the last 15 years. And the last renewal was very sketchy in 2019 after back and forth between the Ministry of Energy and the Public Procurement Authority. And there was big, there were big issues, according to the head of the Procurement Authority, there were major issues with the bid document that was used for the last renewal of the contract. But, he was, uh, but the Ministry of Energy was insisting on renewing it in a way that allowed no competition in the sector. So there are issues related to competition, related to waste of public funds, and issues related to, to the quality of the fuel. This whole case will be unfolding 
better in the future but there there is a it's it's quite a big scandal in terms of the size of the money involved and also uh, the sketchy contracts in terms of the major company whose name is on the contract but also in terms of the local company uh, ZR Energy who is owned by uh, Rahme Brothers, Remo and Teddy Rahme, and seems to be doing all the actual work uh, apart from, you know, the, the major brand names. So the, this company, ZR Energy, is the one that was getting this fuel under the umbrella of Sonatrack. So we will be telling more about the story as we know uh, more in the, in the near future. But this seems to be like one of the scandals that involves a lot of bribes, that involves a lot of, you know, the, the knowledge of many people there is the minister the ministers of energy over this time have changed a lot in political affiliation it started when mohammed finesh was a minister of energy who is a hezbollah member and then uh, the contract was renewed the last time when nada bustani was energy minister from the fpm right and and so both of them had to go in and get questioned by uh one of the investigative judges in mount lebanon this week this story like you say there are so many angles to it you know corruption wise and money wise and all this stuff but also there's just the politics right there are questions about the ties that this zr energy company has to politicians Mm -hmm. um of course we we can see just from the officials who are reacting to this that uh it's uh, this complaint was led by the fpm actually it was a member of the politburo of the free patriotic movement that lodged the complaint and then a judge who is very much associated with the free patriotic movement who took it forward and and so how that works out and the internal politics both internally with inside the fpm and externally will be something to watch over the coming weeks Indeed, and it's very likely that the politics shuts this down the same way that it brought it up, and we'll know more about that soon. Uh, speaking of stuff going on judicially, well, we had a an update from the military tribunal, not related to coronavirus, but related to uh, abuse of protesters by the army. Peter Germanos, who is the top prosecutor at the military tribunal, uh, ordered an internal probe into uh, mistreatment of detainees by the army and torture allegations that have been made. Last week, of course, there was a there was a big. The army acted very very aggressively towards protesters. I'll put it that way, and a whole lot of allegations came out of this. That the army was uh, not just beating people, and we have we have footage of the army beating protesters and civilians. But not only that, but also once people were taken into custody, it appears that they some were electrocuted, others were mistreated in other in other ways, and a group of lawyers, uh, which was set up to uh, protect these protesters, been uh, doing a lot of work and trying to document all of this stuff, and and they came out with with the statement earlier, and so Germanus was following up on that and ordering this internal investigation. Now, supposedly, it seems as though the army had already conducted its own investigation, which found nothing wrong happened, of course. Uh, so this appears to be sort of a step up uh, with Germanos asking sort of like the, the, the internal investigations unit to actually look into this. Of course, in past instances, we haven't seen too much public accountability come from the army. Uh, I can certainly think of a couple of cases off the top of my head that 
just you know never really saw any conclusion or we didn't really see any news out of it and and so there there is a quite it, it isn't just one of these things where okay well the army's investigating it we can rest assured that this is going to be taken care of no this is one of those things that certainly activists protesters lawyers who are interested in, in human rights and stuff like that uh, will have to and and the media of course will have to keep on this story if they want to see any sort of accountability or resolution to this yeah especially especially that the army's intelligence unit right the army uh, the investigative unit in the army intelligence was tasked with investigating something that the army intelligence committed so there's a little bit of conflict of interest there they're literally investigating themselves so i have no idea how this makes sense in any way and the lawyers have brought this up they've said that you know the lawyers committee for defense of protesters they've said that this process kind of violates a law that was passed in 2017 i think the law against uh, the use of torture or something like that and this law stated, you know, who is supposed to look into these things. And the army was not supposed to have any role unless uh, it's just a pure procedural role that doesn't have any judgment in it, any verdict, any investigative role, any interrogation, etc. So there is a clear legal violation there, but also like even disregarding the law is just a clear conflict of interest. So I'm not very optimistic about this investigation, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, moving on to economics. The lira fell slightly from trading at, it was trading around 4,000 to 4,200 earlier in the week. And then it went up to 42 to 4,400 on, this is of course on the black market, according to Omar Tama, one of the nerds, the fall of the lira happened after the arrest of the head of the exchange syndicate, Mahmoud Murad. Uh, and and this is just yet another, this is the continuation of what we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks. Exchanges are basically shut down. The government appears to be very serious about trying to enforce this 3,200 exchange rate. But I mean, that's just not how things work in reality, right? Uh, and so essentially what you've had is the creation of a black market. Uh, <laughs> so now the situation it, is basically no one can buy dollars and the few exchange shops that are open are um, buying dollars from people from much lower prices usually because you know you need to have information about this specific specific exchange shop that has the best trade to go there because most of them are closed so basically you know we go back to this problem in, in economics of, of uh, the inequality of information like most people are being screwed twice right they can't have access to dollars if they need it and if when they're selling their dollars they're selling it for the lower rate than the market this is a really bad situation that we're seeing now it's not helping anymore. yeah yeah absolutely and and amid all of the just chaos in the economy that's going on right now we had sort of a lot of political theater going on this week ostensibly connected to trying to solve this problem but really it just looked like the normal run-of-the-mill political theater to me uh <laughs> president michelle Aoun invited the heads of parliamentary blocks up to babda for like this meeting to discuss the government plan that we talked about last week now it, it was interesting that he invited the heads of parliamentary blocks because that seems like sort of an infringement on uh parliament's prerogatives in the past he's invited heads of parties which is a difference that some of his detractors pointed out this time another thing that was pointed out was that you know why why is he calling this after the cabinet has passed this plan why not before you know if if the president and the prime minister wanted real consultations then of course they would have asked for you know the input of 
of others beforehand. This is what some people like those in the future movement, for instance, were saying uh, about this meeting. So the way things worked out is five blocks boycotted the session, and that was the future movement, uh, the Progressive Socialist Party, Kata'eb, Azam movement, which is Makati, and Marada, Suleiman Frangie's party, which is interesting because uh, Frangie's party is part of the government, actually. And generally, they're considered, you know, sort of along this, you know, March 8th axis or whatever. So if, if if what some people claim is true, that Hezbollah controls, you know, the government and all this stuff, they can't even keep one of their minor parties in line on an issue like this. It, it really shows the, the state of governance and and that nobody really controls all of Lebanon. There isn't this unified March 8th block or unified Hezbollah block or anything like that. Uh, it, everything comes down to more local considerations, I think. But th- those who did attend, of course, were uh, Aoun, uh, the, the head or rather the founder of the Free Patriotic Movement, his son-in-law, Gibran Basile, uh, who now heads the Free Patriotic Movement, uh, Nabi Berri of the Amal Movement, Faisal Karami of the Sunni Six or the Consultative Gathering, which was the only Sunni representation there uh, from parliament, uh, to my knowledge, uh, Muhammad Rad of Hezbollah, Talal Arslan of the Lebanese Democratic Party, which is very closely aligned to the FPM, Hagop uh, Pakrudunian of Tashnag, also very closely allied to the FPM, uh, Assad Hardan of the SSNP, and Samir Jaja of the Lebanese forces, which is also interesting because the Lebanese forces have been amongst the most strident uh, in the opposition to this government and in the opposition to uh, Hezbollah and Aoun. Yeah, I just want to make one little point here about, you know, the consultations and their timing. Just to be completely fair, the government did a few consultation meetings, but they were not addressed to they did not invite the head of blocks, etc. They did some meetings with uh, with economists, with the press involved, etc., where uh, they were doing basically consultations about the content, people giving feedback on certain policies, etc. But it wasn't like high politi- high level, high tier political uh, meetings. Yeah, and to add to that as well, uh, or just complete it rather, uh, of course, uh, several members of the government were there. Uh, so Hassan Diab, Ghazi Wazni, the finance minister, Raul Nami, the economy minister. Uh, no Riyad Suleimi, which is another uh, large omission when you're talking about the economic future of the country. The, the, the attendees decided that a plan of action is necessary to regain the confidence on all levels. Nothing really substantive came out of this is my takeaway. This was, a, like I said at the top, an exercise in sort of political theater. It didn't seem to accomplish really anything. It just sort of drew the lines a little bit more clearly about where people stand uh, and and who they're close to. And one final thing before we wrap up, uh, just over the past, I don't know, 24, 48 hours or so, we started to see these things about the possible return of Baha al-Hariri, Saad's older brother, also the son of Rafiq Hariri. I don't know, Nizar, what, what's going on here? Yeah, it's an interesting uh, development in the Hariri family. Apparently, uh, Baha al-Hariri found the current moment to be a good opportunity to kind of step into the scene and uh, push his brother to the sidelines more or criticize him. He released a statement saying, you know, he supports the Lebanese revolution, the uprising against the ruling class and, um, you know, without defending his brother of anything. And he said that 
you know everyone who is involved in the ruling class is to blame for where the situation has reached now etc and um, it's not only that you don't read only the statement you have to see what the people around him are saying and doing and uh, he's basically involved with one guy uh, who has been running some sorts of forums like discussion forums i think but basically what he's been doing is uh, supporting certain groups or uh, funding certain groups and initiatives in different parts of the countries uh, meaning in sunni parts usually and what they're doing now is trying to portray Saad hariri as a failed like uh, political attempt that you know someone who didn't know how to deal with hezbollah and kind of come to hezbollah and uh, to, to hezbollah's allies who was someone who didn't do anything well on the economic side itself it's a, as well so it's basically a whole critique of Sal Hariri and talking about the need to have a new Sunni leader who has better connections to people from across the spectrum from across different religious affiliations etc but there's no really convincing pitch there to me or to anyone I think but it's it's a lot of money seems to be involved with you know uh, the spokesperson for Bahal Hariri basically saying yes we've been supporting different people meaning funding them and this is not uh, this is not a secret. And then going on this whole political crusade against uh, Saad al-Hariri. Anyway, um, we we yet to see most of the story. Uh, Hariri, the future movement has responded by certain attacks on Bahal Hariri. You know, accusing him of never standing with his brother, of you know never supporting. Uh, him or um, even I think the one of the media offices of one of the future movement MPs said Baal Hariri you should run for elections and prove that you are a political leader otherwise just don't do this kind of politics and we have to remember here just for a second that in 2017 when Saad Hariri went to Saudi Arabia and he was quote-unquote forced to resign by the Saudi royal family uh, f- from his prime ministerial position and the Lebanese ruling class kind of came together to support him, especially President Michel Aoun and uh, Speaker Nabih Birri, etc. There was serious talk about Raha al-Hariri being uh, pushed to be the re- replacement, the alternative to Saad al-Hariri. This was talked about by PSP officials, this was talked about by Nuhad al-Mashnu indirectly, the former Minister of Interior, who has big problems with Saad al-Hariri, but at the same time sided with him against Baha al-Hariri when he said that, you know, the Lebanese, the Sunni people in Lebanon are not cheap that you can, you know, take in one direction or the other, uh, meaning criticizing Saudi Arabia for trying to impose one leader and not the other on the Sunni population. So this is a big story that we will be following in the future. But it seems, you know, Baha is, is seriously getting into the game now. I think that's all we can uh, we can cover in terms of news because we're really excited about uh, getting to the main topic. Welcome again to the show, uh, Leia. So one of the main questions we've had during this time is the social effects of of the crisis of the pandemic and the economic crisis resulting from it on workers in Lebanon who are already known to be in in quite a vulnerable situation is is really worrying, right? Do you do we have any numbers, for example, or um, any studies that have been done recently? about the effects of the crisis? Thank you, Nizar. Very pertinent question. I think I want to say first that the workforce in Lebanon was in crisis way before the crisis itself. And we need to, I think, stop a minute and look at what the situation was before. And I think now it's in a state of shock. But before it was really bad as well. So I want to say just a historical tidbit first that the the last labor survey in Lebanon was conducted in 1970 under the direction of Robert Casparian. It's a beautiful, beautiful statistical book. And we didn't have any labor survey until the beginning of 2019. 
which is a little bit funny because um, when the government decided to do another labor survey, suddenly it became irrelevant because the situation now is very different from the beginning of 2019, right? Mm. So at the beginning of 2019, we already can see that we have, and I think this is the major problem, a very large proportion of informality. And by informality, we mean Mm -hmm. uh, workers who have no uh, social security, who don't necessarily earn the minimum wage, and transportation, for instance, is not included in their wage. Any increase in the minimum wage does not involve them at all. So we can say Mm -hmm. that around 40% of the labor force, and I, I, I think it's minimum, work in the informal sector. And I think we should take these numbers very indicative, but it gives us, um, you know, an idea about uh, how bad is the situation. Another problem that we had, we have low wages because it's a jobless economy. It's an economy that did not create jobs. It's a rentier economy, as we know. We have a high rate of unemployment. According to the latest survey, it's around uh, 15%. But um, we have to say that this survey was not published uh, entirely. There's maybe problems in the methodology, but this is what we have. Another problem also we have to, to, to look at is that we don't have protection for domestic workers, migrant workers, agricultural workers. So already we are in a very dif- difficult situation. And we have the kafala system that we know is very inhumane. So this is the picture before the crisis. Now, mm-hmm. the impact of the crisis affect workers uh, differently. And I want to say that also COVID exposes the inequality among people who can work, who can telework from home and have their salaries intact. And those who completely lose their job because their job is directly linked to the, the place where they work, like let's say waiters. And the others who have to work despite the lockdown like cleaning workers or delivery workers. So there's a lot of inequality even in that. So if you want to look at the impact first, let's look at the impact on migrant workers. Or they lost their job completely and have a very difficult time in surviving for food and rent. Or those who have to keep on working, like the cleaning workers, who continue to to, to work despite the pandemic, who are then also in a big danger. And we have those domestic workers who are overworked and probably they are unpaid because households cannot afford to pay in the foreign currency. And all of migrant workers cannot necessarily leave the country or they don't have the money to or their papers Mm are not in order. So this is this is a, a big tragedy. And I and the, the article that was published, uh, I think, yesterday in the public source, uh, written by Banshi Yimer, uh, is superb. And I recommend that you read it. It really transports us to the, the lives of domestic workers at the moment. So this is the impact on migrant workers. Um, mm-hmm. The impact on wage earners is, okay, so we have those who who still have their salaries, right? But their salaries are eaten from the inflation and from the depreciation. So what do they have left? So so just a quick example. What you can buy for 100,000 Lebanese lira in March 2019 will cost you in March 2020 140,000. And I'm sure in April it will be the double. So um, those are the best, you know, the the most privileged uh, wage earners, right? Who still have their salary who still have their jobs. Now you have those who, okay, there are numbers that one third of uh, the workforce have lost their jobs completely. 
And you have numbers that say around 250 enterprises completely shut down. And you have those who are who shut down temporarily, who probably will not be able to open again, like most of the restaurants. You have those who are forced to work less because if they don't accept to work less, they will be laid off. This is also a problem. And you have those who completely lost their jobs. So the wage earners are in a very difficult situation, even if they have their jobs. And you have the self-employed who have don't, who don't have income anymore. So this is this is the picture. Yeah, I think I read uh, a, stat- a statistic by uh, published by Mohammed Zbib, the economic journalist that we've quoted many times on this show, talking about purchasing power and the basically the real value or the dollar value of of income in Lebanon, and it's really very telling. So according to the Labor and Household Survey um, done by the Central Administration of Statistics and the ILO back in 2018, 72% of families in Lebanon have income that is 2,400,000 lira or less. Okay, so 2.4 million. And right now, 2.4 million is uh, on the real exchange rate in the market around $550. So $550 is actually less than the dollar, the real uh, dollar value of the minimum wage before the crisis. So Mohammed Zbib was saying, like, you want to understand, like, how much the purchasing power of people has been erased. You have to look at this specific comparison because it shows you that what you can buy now are nothing compared to what you could buy before because most of the products in the Lebanese market are imported. And you go to the shop now and you see that, uh, you know, products have been increasing incredibly in prices, like maybe not all only necessities but also things that we want to buy every now and then been increasing incredibly in prices and uh, i don't know if you have do you have um uh, statistics specifically on price increase and what is projected to happen during this year Ilea? because i know that in the institution institution where you work uh, there's done uh, there's work being done always on on price index right i want to first say like a disclaimer i think we can stop talking about uh, you know numbers and the percentage of people who will become poor you know, these percentages of 50% of people will fall under the poverty line. I think we have to consider that the entire population or like we have to consider that this is um, a total phenomenon. I, I don't think it, it matters if it's 50 or 60 or 70. It's most of the mm-hmm. Lebanese are poor and we have to, to, to deal with this. Now, regarding the, the prices, we have to look at the consumer price index. Uh, of course, when we go to the supermarket, we look around, we see that everything is increasing, everything is like uh, doubling the price. But if we want to look exactly on the numbers, we have to look at a, a, a very historical database, which is the database that the Consumer Price Index has. So if we look at the food prices only, because this is, you know, the basic staples, we see that in March 2020, on average, everything has increased by 20%. But if you look at things like, for instance, sugar or flour, you see that they have increased by 15 and 60%. And it is expected that in April, it will be much higher. The April uh, CPI number is not published yet. I think it will be published next week. And it will be very interesting to look at. But what is very important also to note is that in the past 10 years, if we look at the the numbers of the food prices, we see that they have been increasing despite the fact that the number was, uh, that the dollar was fixed, right? It was pegged. But the food prices have increased nevertheless. So we are expecting that even, that regardless of what's going to happen to the dollar, the food prices are going to increase with time. This increase will continue and that the prices were not necessarily linked to, to, to the pack dollar or not. 
there have been many issues raised about this. We will do a different episode, I think, on on the market and oligopolies and you know price manipulation, Lebanon. So what we're facing now, given what you've said, is you know a crisis in terms of labor rights, uh, a crisis in terms of uh, the health of workers and their purchasing power, and all of this has to be you know seen as a as a big picture rather than just focusing on one side, the lira uh, deterioration or the wages, etc. And what is also interesting is that in the past few months, in the uprising, which was really an unprecedented social phenomenon in Lebanon, and during this crisis and the the government publishing its plan containing heavy austerity and the deal with the IMF that is seeking and all of that, you would expect workers' unions and labor unions to be very active or at least have their voices heard to be, you know, um, opposing and resisting the austerity measures uh, to be demanding unemployment benefits or uh, better conditions, etc. And it's been really silent. So this is a question that everyone is always asking about Lebanon. Where are the unions, right? Where are the workers' unions? I've, I'm sure, and you've done work on that, right? The workers' unions have been absent from social movements in Lebanon. So can you kind of give us an idea about that? Um, an idea in a very uh, short time, yes. But it's a complicated story. It's... Um... The root causes of the absence of uh, the labor movement, I think, personally, they go back to the 1970s, even before the Reconstruction period that started in the 1990s. So I want to first look at structural problems, which are, for instance, our economic system, the, an economy that doesn't create jobs, the concentration of the jobs in the services sector, which comprise 75% of jobs, the fact that we have have small enterprises in Lebanon. And here we should know probably this number has been said over and over again, but 90% of enterprises in Lebanon hire less than five workers. So it's really micro, micro, nano maybe enterprises. And this Mm -hmm. uh, structure does not help for a strong labor movement or big labor movement. Second, we have another problem, which which is the labor code and the regulations in Lebanon. Lebanon has always refused to ratify the conventions, the ILO conventions for freedom of association and labor organizing. Associations in Lebanon require, labor associations require a pre-authorization from the Ministry of Labor. So already we have uh, a lot of constraints in the labor code itself. Another constraint in the labor code is that it doesn't protect workers who are creating or establishing a union. So Article 50 of the labor code, it's very important and it also helps us understand the failure of um, the attempt to organize of the Spinis uh, supermarket. So Article 50 only protects uh, unionists who are elected. But if you are trying to, to establish a union as a worker, you can be fired uh, your employer can fire you and you are not protected. And this is why mm. we had the tragedy of Spinney's where workers were laid off because they tried, they dared to try to establish mm-hmm. a trade union. So this is to look at an, an, an structural, to look at the structural impediments. But the most important part is how unions were co-opted in the 1990s. So in Lebanon, the body that represents labor unions is called the General Confederation. Confederation of Workers in Lebanon. I will refer to it as Confederation. This confederation was created in 1970, and it initially had five federations in it. Since its creation, this federation had a very controversial uh, structure, a very controversial uh, chart, organizational chart. 
And I think this is where the problem starts. This confederation is not representative, which means that you have a council of federations, right? Every federation should be represented in this council. And this council would elect the president, would take decisions of strike, of protest, etc. This council is not representative, which, which means that every federation that comprised different unions, no matter how many unions it has, how, no matter how many workers are represented by this federation, they get four members in this council. So if you have a federation that, has, that represents 5,000 workers, they get the same number of votes as a federation that has 50 workers. Wow. This was, yes, this was used to hijack decision-making of the Confederation, mainly through the 90s. And I will explain a little bit more how, how they did this. So already we have a very dangerous, uh, let's say, structure. A lot of attempts were made to, to amend it, but it remains the same charter since 1970. A serious attempt was made in the 90s, but it was aborted. So this is um, the root cause. Now, in the 1990s, the reconstruction started and, you know, to pave the way for very harsh neoliberal policies, it was important to control the decisions of the, con- the Confederation, right, to, to, to stop any possibility of strikes and demonstrations in one way. And I think another way was also the Troika at the time, which was uh, Lahoud, Birri and Hariri, also tried to use this confederation, regardless of whether it's this intersected with the real demands of workers, right? So members of the Troika tried to use the confederation against each other for political gain. And this is, um, you know, as demonstrated in, in, in several events, I don't think we have time to, to go through this. But the most vibrant period was between 92 and 98, where you had Yes uh, Abureza, who was the president of this confederation. Every single year from 92 to 97, we had a a wage increase based on the mobilization of the confederation, right? And at some point, there was a decision because, you know, Lies Bureza was a bit out of control. There was some accusations that he was backed by Lahoud against Hariri, etc. It doesn't mean that he, he was not engaged for the needs of the workers, right? But there's a lot of intersections all the time in, in, in such um, mm-hmm. uh, political times. Uh, there was a decision that they wanted to get rid of him. The political elite decided that they wanted to get rid of him. And this is when, in 1998, that this, the cooptation of the Confederation started and became tangible. First step was the interference in the elections of the president. And here is a second major important a way to control the, the, the labor movement. So as I said, the federations had equal votes, right? A way to, to control the decision-making was to create fake federations. So we moved from 1990, from 30 federations. After, 10, after five years, let's say, we had 10 more federations. 10 more after a couple of years, we are now at 60 federations. It's a lot. 60 federations of labor unions in Lebanon, where do they come from? How do you create fake federations to Mm -hmm. control the elections? So you have around 300 unions that conduct regular elections. You can be a union that is represented in different federations. 
And you can also create unions that are fake. And you can populate fake federations with fake unions. And with 30 fake federations, you can do whatever you want in the confederation, correct? In this period, in the 90s, you had 30 federations created. Not all of them maybe are fake, but this increase of federations explain how it was hijacked. And after uh, they got rid by elections using this, what I just said, this formula, of his uh, Abu Reza, Ghassan Ghassan was uh, elected. From 2001 to 2016, we had the same president of the confederation, knowing that all decision-making, decision of strikes or protests or demands are taken by this president and the council that is co-opted. So if mm-hmm. we look today, after having said all that, we are no longer shocked when we know that in 2012, end of 2011, when Shaiban Nahas proposed a wage increase, a policy solution of a wage increase to the cabinet at the time, the General Confederation of Workers in Lebanon sided against him for a lower minimum wage. That this is, is insane. This is where we are. But we know why. We know how. Mm-hmm. So th- these are the main ways of capturing the decision making. Uh, but this is in a very, you know, we're just looking at the texts and uh, in a very institutionalist way. Of course, there are other aspects to look at, but we don't have time. We just want to know how this was practically done. There, there was a different strategy involved in, or a different tactic involved in uh, co-opting the other union movement that was came to um, to the scene in around 2012-2013 with the teachers and the public sector workers led by the Union Coordination Committee doing uh, a lot of strikes uh, and asking for a wage hike and better benefits for public sector workers and teachers. In that case, with Hanna Gharib uh, being the most famous uh, figure in the movement and now becoming the leader of the Lebanese Communist Party, um, in that case... The, the Lebanese ruling class was could not use the same kind of tactics, so instead they all kind of coalesced around each other in one list and defeated the leadership in the elections of, of the Union Coordination Committee. Do you see any you know parallels or in, in, in the two cases, or is it not the same? Um, very, very good question. I don't really agree that it was, a, it was a different technique because, again, they defeated the leadership of the Union Coordination Committee through the elections, through invading, you know, the decision-making uh, space. And other techniques, like the techniques they used with the Confederation of Workers, are not applicable, like uh, creating other federations or creating mm-hmm. fake unions. This is not applicable to the public sector. And I exactly. think this is why they couldn't use it. First, we have to know that uh, public sector leagues are not allowed to have a union. And it was in 1972 that they were allowed to create leagues. And by law, you can only have one league in the entire country for secondary teachers, right? One league for intermediate teachers. By law, you cannot create mm-hmm. another one. And I'm sure if they had the right to do it, this would have been a tool to make them weaker. And I think this is why they were strong and united in their struggle from 2012 to 2017. And the state... Find, found itself obliged to cancel official exams to be able to break these uh, the teachers. The teachers had this tool of corrections, of uh, proctoring exams since the 70s, and they have always used it to increase their wages. Whether we agree with this demand or not is something else. But this was their main tool. 
And the government got to a point where they didn't know what to do. And they used the sectarian cards before. They tried to mm-hmm. use sectarian cards like the Amal or Amal movement or future movement instructed some teachers to go against their league and to correct exams. And they refused. And when, I, when, I, when this happened, it really gave me a lot of hope. So the government, the Ministry of Education had to, to cancel the exams. It's huge. And after that, 10 political parties allied in one list to defeat uh, Hannah Ghalib, like a lot of power against this person to get rid of them. And this is why, and this is, since then, we haven't heard anything about uh, public sector leagues. So the ruling class in Lebanon, we can say historically has had a very, has been very uh, clear in its, you know, in its um, determination to make sure labor unions and the workers' movement in the country is not strong enough to fight against any policies or to push, to put their demands on the table in a very serious way. This proves to us these ways or strategies used to co-opt the workers' movement that workers can make a change, right? This proves to us that they have to contain the workers because they are afraid of what they can do. And being now, after the October Revolution, I think if, if there's one thing that we have achieved in this revolution is this paradigm shift where people lost their trust in these ruling elites. And the ruling elites are weakened. So their intervention now in new labor uh, organizing is going to be weaker. And them using the sectarian cards is going to be weaker in the coming years, which which gives me hope for a stronger labor movement. And also, just I want to just add one point to that, which is another source of hope has come with the, with the creation of new um, union-like organizations during the Thaura period. Uh, I don't know if you're involved in any of that. I am uh, part of the Association of Independent Professors, which is part of uh, the Association of Professionals. Uh, it's an umbrella, Mihaniyat wa Mihaniyin. And I actually wanted to talk about it. I think their creation comes within the revolution and for the revolution. But it also, mm-hmm. if you look at it, like why now? I think it's an accumulation of of previous attempts to organize without, you know, a labor a framework. And when I interviewed a lot of, uh, you know, organizers from the professors or uh, the media or engineers or artists, they all had the same you know, leitmotiv, which is we tried before and we feel like now we need to organize in a stronger way. We need an organization. We try to steer away from any structure, but we believe that structureless, leaderless movements have, you know, reached a little, like are somehow not enough and we need an organization now. And I wrote a little bit of how things started for the public source. It will be out. It's actually out today. I think we also have to look at the, the resources of, of the personal initiative and the experiences of people before, which helps them to create now stronger labor organizations. The situation of workers is going to uh, logically deteriorate, especially with the reform plan, if it's implemented, with the, the, the austerity measures that will you know, weaken the National Social Security Fund, that will uh, also downsize the public sector, which today is estimated at 350,000 workers, uh, knowing that the public sector is um, like the major trend social mobility in Lebanon. Um, and this will create also more problems. But I want to say that this is when we need a stronger labor movement. This is where I think we mm-hmm. we will have to do more. And I think after the revolution, people will not now succumb to, to sectarian leadership. And citizens have now seized the public sphere, right, to oppose the political system. And mm-hmm. there's no return 
to 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 the status quo and we like people now will have to mobilize to protect their survival so i'm looking forward to to see how we're going to to change the situation yeah i mean with the government plan when when i was reading the government plan this was one of the things that came to my mind like will we have workers organizing for the rights during this time and to oppose uh, the heavy austerity that the government is planning and the ruling class at Lebanon has kind of agreed on. And this is really this is really a very interesting thing to watch. Thank you so much, Leah, for coming on the show. We're sorry we have to cut the conversation here, but I think you gave us a great idea about you know the liberal movement in Lebanon in, in terms of the ruling class approach to it and how it has co-opted it. And now we can really like, I mean, when we have this context in mind, it's much better to understand, much easier to understand how Labor unions can sometimes take positions, as you said, against workers' rights, uh, like what they did with uh, with the wage issue in 2012, or how they can be suddenly defeated and silenced after being very strong and going on many strikes. This is just super fascinating, Leia. Thank you so much for coming on to the program. I wish that we had another hour or two. I could just pick your brain. Uh, but may- maybe we'll get you back sometime in the future and we can continue this conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ben. Uh, yes, I'm sure like the, this year we're going to have to talk a lot about labor. Thank you guys for this uh, great episode. I enjoyed it a lot. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Uh, until then, I'm Nizar Hassan. I'm Benjamin Red. And I'm Leah Bukhater. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.